0: Amen. So psalm, psalm 126, we're going to get into this message beginning in verse number one. Uh, this is a, a, a psalm that most people believe or tribute to Ezra or Zechariah, which points this after Babylon, in the coming out of Babylon. This is important to remember because it's written from a place of captivity, and how many of us could read a, write a psalm from a place of captivity? And most of us, when, when, when we have one setback, we're ready to fall back. And when you look at the scope of the life of Israel, every setback, it did set them back, but listen, this is the key. When it set them back, they turned back to God. That's the key. When it set them back, they turned back to God. And if you'll get that down, no matter what happens in your life, you'll make it through. Because no matter what the setback is, if you'll turn back to God, you'll find the answer. Whether you're in the prison house or the outhouse or the White House. Come on. But the Psalm 126, it says in verse number 1, Now, verse 1, 2, and 3 all kind of come together, but look what he says. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Can you say that you're glad while you're in captivity? You, you know, sometimes we may not be in captivity like they were. You may not be enslaved, but, you know, in all actuality right here in this passage, the progress on the temple had stopped. They they were in a limbo place. They were in a place where they couldn't move forward. They couldn't really go backwards. They couldn't really go forward. They were just kind of stuck. It's just, there No work could go forward. You can't really go back where you used to be. You just got to stop doing what you're doing. And they were just stuck. They were stuck. And and nothing was going to change until God began to move again. And this is what this is what they came to. This is this is what dawned on them. When when they realized they got got themselves in a mess, they turned to the one who could bring them out. Amen. When you realize and you do like you need to do like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourself. To see if you be in the faith. Sometimes, you know, we fall back. Sometimes the fire goes down. Sometimes we're not zealous for the things of God again. Sometimes we get tired, weary, frustrated, whatever it may be. Just check yourself. Say, Lord, what's going on? And get ready, because the Lord will tell you. And, and, and what they did is they would they began to say, you know what, we're stuck in a mess. And they began to remember God had got them out of the first mess 400 years earlier. God had gotten them out of it, and everybody, even the heathen, saw the miracle. And when the heathen saw the miracle, they, were, they said, Man, their God is awesome. And they said, Our God is awesome, He's made us glad. They got happy in a valley. They got happy in a valley. Listen, the valley didn't change. They were still stuck as they ever was. But they got happy in the valley, and that was the first step to getting out. They found joy where there shouldn't be any. They found joy where the world would find, well, see if I ever try again. They found joy where the world finds I'm offended. They found joy where the world would quit. How is that? They looked at God, not the circumstance. You want to focus on the circumstance? You'll go down to the level of the circumstance. You focus on God, you'll go to that level too. You you, you put your mind and your heart and your thoughts on God, it'll be elevated to where God is. You'll think on heavenly things. You'll think on things of glory, deliverance, mighty exaltation. But some of us, we can't get out of our own way. We're just too busy complaining about how many weeds are in the valley to stop and look at how beautiful God is. And so they got happy in the valley. Will you? Because don't think you're not going to go in a valley. Life may be peachy today, but tomorrow it might be a little moldy. And when you go in the valley, it's not if, it's when. When you go in the valley, can you get, can you get happy there? Only way you can is when you turn to God even in the valley. You know, when you're in the valley, you still don't have the answers. They were still stuck. Nothing was going to change until God moved. And actually, God moved on them to do something. God asked them to do something. But look at this, verse 4. It says, turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. In the previous message, we really kind of got in on this. And the streams from the south, they come out of nowhere it, it comes from a place it shouldn't come. This is the now River. It, it flows backwards. It goes upstream. And it takes something living to go upstream. It's easy to complain. It's easy to, it's easy to find fault. I mean, you can go to a mall and be a, a people picker. It's easy to find faults with folks. It, it, it takes a man or a woman of God to be an encourager of folks. It takes a man or a woman of God to see through people's issues to what God's doing in their soul. It takes a man or a woman of God to look past the problem and look at the soul. Look at what God's doing from his perspective. Look that God is rescuing. Amen. We always say the church is supposed to be a hospital, right? It's supposed to be a hospital for the sick, for the sinner, for the wayward, for the lost. But are we ready for that? Is in order to do that, we have to be able to see things from God's perspective. And even in our own lives, when we have situations in our life, we have to understand God's at work. God's at work. And this stream that flows from the south, it's the, it's the stream of repentance. It's a stream of tears. It says, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy in verse number five. This, this sowing of tears is not... Just any tears. You catch somebody stealing, they might cry. You, you, you catch somebody doing something wrong, they might cry. You catch somebody lying about you? You ever catch somebody gossiping about you or tearing you down? They might cry. But how many of you know it could be crocodile tears? What do we mean? What do you, you know what crocodile tears are? It's tears for show. You can, you know, squirt something in your face and make tears fall. You can cry over spilled milk, but it don't mean that you want God to move. And the tears that God's talking about, the tears that are sown, the tears that return joy are not worldly tears. It's not just, man, I wish I had a new house. Oh, God, give me a new house. It's not tears of worldly sorrow. God's looking for brokenness over godliness. God's looking for individuals to be broken that the kingdom of God not go forward. God's looking for individuals to be broken when they see God's kingdom not advancing. They say, God, this person here just keeps rejecting you, moving their life, God. They need you. Lord, break that addiction off of them. Break that despondency off of them. Every time they come to church, they look sad. They look like they lost their best friend. Lord, we pray that you would give them joy without ceasing, that the Holy Ghost would come upon them and in them and produce in them, right? Everlasting joy. How many of you know that God can do that? How many of you know that that it's not the joy of the world that we need? It's the joy of the Lord that we need. But too many of us, when we don't have the joy of the world, we don't look for the joy of the Lord. Stop associating the joy of the Lord with the joy of the world. God is not like that. God's a cut above things don't work out in worldly terms sometimes but God always works them out his way all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose do you believe that tonight? Do you believe that, that all things work together for God's good, even when I lose a job, even when I don't have what everybody else has, even when I'm stuck right here? Yes, yes, and yes, yes. The Bible says yes and amen. All all the spiritual promises of God are in Christ Jesus. Yes and amen. And that is exactly true. Whenever we get into these situations, God's working something out. You get in it, but God's working something out of it. And if you'll be submissive and surrender to God, when you get in it, God will work you out of it. But if you are resistant to God and you get all offended and despondent and, and, well, I knew I shouldn't have done this. You get all like that. You get all bent out of shape. You get hard hearted. You get hard hearted. You're going to stay where you are. You're going to stay where you are. You might even turn into a pillar of salt. You start looking back too much. You might find yourself stuck. Always remember, when you get in it, God's, God's working you out. If, if you keep those hands lifted and you keep your heart right with God, but no matter what it is you get in, God's going to get you out. Oh, come on. You remember whenever Peter got put in prison? Angel of the Lord. Come on, Peter, get up. What you mean, I'm in prison? No, you're yeah, not. The gate's coming open. No, I'm in prison. I, I mean, I, I, that's just my luck. That's how I am. I was a fisherman, and then, you know, I, I, I betrayed the Lord, and then look what happened. Now I'm in prison. Leave me alone. No, he said, yes, Lord. There's one thing about Peter. Quick on his mouth, right? Quick on his mouth. But he had a heart, a heart of gold. And, 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 and even though he was in that prison when that angel of the Lord came and said, it's time to get up, he got up. He said, yes, Lord. You know, sometimes you can make a prison house your penthouse when God's trying to get you out of it. Don't get comfortable where God don't want you to be. Oh, this pig pen, it's mighty comfy. I mean, it's not like my father's house, but it'll do. This is mine, my pig pen. Don't get comfortable where God don't want you. It's a dangerous thing to do. It's a dangerous thing to do. Why? Why is it a dangerous thing to do? Because it means that you're not afflicted anymore. It means you're not responding to the Holy Ghost anymore. That's one thing that we do, we, are, we, we will adapt. We will adapt into our situation. Oh, well, you know, I guess this is the way it's supposed to be. No, you're supposed to contend. You're supposed to cry out to God. You're supposed to get afflicted. You're supposed to pray. You're supposed to intercede. You're supposed to get on your knees and cry out. You might be like, well, pastor, I don't have any more tears. I'm all cried out. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're not all cried out. God's still doing something. God's not done working. This thing's not over yet. You haven't hit the end. You're supposed to finish your race. You can't give up. You're supposed to finish it. God's looking for faithfulness. He's not looking for those that finished first. He's looking for those that finish faithful. Come on. Amen? Uh, is he? Is God looking for who's going to come in first, or is God looking for who's going to come in faithful? When your last breath is drawn, God is either going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. God's looking for those to come in faithful. When you draw your last breath, do you, know, you don't know when that is. It could be right now. Your last breath, when God has a specific time, he's going to call that last breath home. Ain't going to be no more breath in you. When God's ready for you to go, you're gone. Unless you're Hezekiah. He might have been better off just going when it was time, though. But you know what? The, The thing that God wants is for you and me to finish faithful to the end. Carry the fire to the end of the race. Don't let it die out. A quarter mile from the end. How do we do that? By staying afflicted, by staying hunger, by, by getting on our knees, we stay hungry for God by by continually crying over souls, by continually crying out to God, by continually hungering and thirsting for God's presence, for listen, not having revival every now and then, but living revival every day that every day when the enemy tries to stop up those fountains, you just keep digging them back out. You just keep saying, no, I pray every day until I feel the Lord move on my soul, and it's been one hour, two hour, but I'm gonna keep digging till I hit pay dirt, till I hit the fountain of living water. I'm going to keep praying, I'm gonna keep pressing in, and I'm not gonna stop. Do you know nobody is stopping us from doing that? Only your and my flesh stops you from having a personal revival every day. Every day you can get on your knees until the well of that water just begins to flow and burst forth once again until those fountains of living water, listen, come out of your mouth. Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. When was the last time that was? Most of the time, you talk to people today, what comes out of their mouth? Oh, look at that Democrat. Oh, look at that Republican. Oh, look at that stock market. Oh, look, somebody done parked in my parking spot everything else under the sun comes out of people's mouth except for fountains of living water because we're not interceding and waiting on God, afflicted and hungry for his presence and pressing in until those fountains get broken up and that river begins to flow again. You look at the life of of like Jacob, whenever they would begin to prosper, they would have all these wells of water and then the enemy would come and stop them up. And every time you begin to prosper in God... The enemy will come along with a load of dirt and he'll throw it all up in that hole and pack it down real good. He'll get a backhoe even him, pack it down and say, you don't belong on this side of the tracks no more. This is ours. You can't have that no more. But I want you to know that if God gave it to you, it's yours and nobody else has a right to it and you have a right to the fountain of living water. You have a right to the throne of God. It's been purchased by the blood of the lamb. You can go boldly to the throne of grace and obtain everything you need from God. Amen. Amen. And too many times we just allow the enemy to throw that dirt on that well and we just say, well, guess that thing shut off. And there's nothing stopping you from digging it out. It takes work, it does. It takes guts to be a person of God. Don't tell me it don't. You got to have guts to be a man or a woman of God. You're going to have to stand when everything in you wants to quit. You're going to have to press forward when everything in you wants to go backwards. You're going to have to intercede and pray and cry out for people that don't like you. You're going to have to encourage people that stab you in the back. But then you're going to have to get to that place where you say, Nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but thine. Lord, it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. I'm not living for myself. I live by faith. I live by the faith of the Son of God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That faith of God in me, Lord, I want you to do all that you need to do in the people's lives around me. So he said, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. This is... Not just any tears, but tears that turn to God. Amen. God's not looking for crocodile tears. If God was looking for crocodile tears, we'd be, you know, a televangelist would be crying tears for you and selling them in a bottle, telling you, hey, we got what you need. Send in 1995. You can have my crocodile tears and pour them over your altar and over your Bible, and God will begin to move mountains for you. 1995, plus shipping and handling. Don't forget that part. But it's not crocodile tears that God needs because God knew there'd be televangelists one day. He's looking for tears from you. And not just any tears, tears that turn to God. Tears that turn to God. Let me show you what I mean over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This stream that he's talking about it's the same stream that John the Baptist talked about. You remember whenever John the Baptist was baptizing everybody everybody started saying, "Whoo, we need that." Even the religious leaders, the Pharisees, all of them, they said, we want that too. They, only did, they were only doing what everybody else was doing. Have you ever noticed that about religious leaders? They do what everybody else is doing? Copycats. It's called church growth seminars today, but it's copycats. It, 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 it is everybody doing the same thing. Same, they may say it two different ways, but they say in the same thing, doing the same thing being honest and those religious leaders with John the Baptist they wanted to do what everybody else was doing because we can't be left behind and John the Baptist said I'm not baptizing you I'm not baptizing you where's the fruit of your repentance where's the tears where's the tears what John the Baptist was looking for was a broken heart and he wasn't going to baptize them until they were broken and they weren't broken that is boldness that takes a man of god again it takes guts you want to be a man or woman of god you're gonna to have to have guts you're gonna to have to have a backbone amen you have to have a backbone i heard a minister say one time if you want, you want to be a preacher you're gonna to have to have a, a the hide of a rhinoceros and and a heart of a teddy bear If it's, Amen. you want to be, you, you want to do something for God, you're going to have to wear that one. All right. Second Corinthians chapter seven, beginning in verse, let's start with verse number six, but just a little um, beforehand. What happened here was in first Corinthians, Paul writes a letter to the church because the church had allowed sin openly in its ranks. Not just any sin, not just little sin, but open, blatant sin that God says no to. And they had allowed it to go on, and Paul said, you can't allow this to go on. So he dealt with it, which any God-fearing church will do. Now, we'll pick this passage up in verse number 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul's going to come back to this issue. Uh, pa- Paul is going to come back to this um He's going to come back to this issue about how to deal with sin. But in the course of it, he says in verse 6, Nevertheless, God, that comforted those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, listen, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. You know what Paul did? He wrote this letter. He wrote this letter to the Corinthian church and he didn't know how they were going to respond. If you've ever if you've ever had to tell somebody tough news, if you've ever had to tell somebody something straight, if you've ever had to take a stand for God, if you've ever had to take a stand for God, you know what this is like. And he didn't know how they were going to respond. And so he was, we'll just kind of uh, say it this way. I, I know it wasn't, but he's kind of on pins and needles till he heard from them. He's kind of just, how are they going to respond? How's it going to go? Are they going to reject me? Why? Is he nervous? No, but he wants them to be reconciled to God. And they can't be reconciled to God until they get this issue straight, right? Look at verse number eight. He said, for though I made you sorry... With the letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I I perceive that the same epistle had made you sorry, though it were but for a season. It's meaning I didn't want to crush you, but I wanted you to listen to God. And and he said, it made you sorry for a season. In in other words, they kind of had to stop in their tracks and deal with something. And so he didn't want to crush them, so he, did, he didn't want to do that, but he's glad he caused them to consider their ways. And this is important. you got to hear this. You've got to get to a place where you live your life considering your way. Every step you take, every relationship you enter into, whether it be for friendship or anything else every relationship you've got to consider your ways before god whether this exalts god whether this honors god whether this is what god wants you to do everything you do from the places you go to where you live to your job you've got to consider your way before god and that's what he wanted in their life he wanted them to consider their way now here we go into this Verse number nine, they were sorry but for a season. That means they had to go to the altar about this, basically. It's a way we would summarize it. Verse nine, he said, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. So he's rejoicing because they repented, okay? Verse 10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. This is what I want you to hear. There's two different kinds of sorrow. There's two different kinds of sorrow and what God is looking for in our lives, those tears that, that you sow, that you will reap joy with, God's looking for godly sorrow, not the sorrow of the world. The sorrow of the world is when you get caught, right? Oh, how can I do this? Oh, oh poor me, right? It's what we call jailhouse conversion sometimes. Is everybody in jail sorry? but are they sorrow wing godly that's the difference how is this what is the difference this is what i want you to understand because this is the difference between reaping with joy and continuing to get stuck continuing to stay in your valley continuing to stay where you've always been the difference is when you're when you're ready To cry out to God, whether it comes from a place of godly sorrow or worldly guilt. So, the sorrow of the world works death. What does that mean? This is depression. This is guilt. Shame, depression, darkness, despair, this is given up, this is poor pitiful me, that, that's what that is. The, the sorrow of the world works death. It brings in your life, it brings in your life a propensity to walk away from God. Listen to that. Worldly sorrow that works death will lead you away from God. You'll say, I know I should be going to church, but I'm just, you know. I know I should pray more. I know I should pray more, brother. I know I should pray more, but you know, I'm just kind of uh I, I know I should, I know I should fast, I know I should read the word, I know I should do this, I know I should do that, but you know I'm just Worldly sorrow will take you to a place where you know you're supposed to do something, but you won't do it. Worldly sorrow will take you to a place where every answer leads you away from God. Might even take you to a place where you go to church, but don't bring your heart. Because according to J.C. Rowell, that's one of the biggest evils in the church world. You, you, you can go to church but not bring your heart. Hello? But one of the surest signs of worldly sorrow that's working death is a sign of a person saying, I know I should be in church, but I just, you know, I'm stuck. I just, you know, I know I should pray, but God knows my heart. Oh, well, yeah, he does. That should scare you. The Bible says that your heart is deceitfully wicked. You give your heart an inch, it's gonna take a mile. You're supposed to trust the Spirit of God. Now, this is important. I want you to get to this in in Luke eighteen. Just flip hold your place there, but flip back over to Luke eighteen. We're gonna look at the life of the rich young ruler for just a minute. The rich young ruler is an epitome of worldly sorrow. Because he had worldly goods. He just wasn't ready to let him go. And you know, you may not be a rich young ruler, but you got something. Pride. A relationship. A position. Something. Everybody's got something that their flesh don't want to let go of. And you know, God is, is not going to allow you to have anything that you love more than him God's you think God's going to settle for us having idols in our lives here in Luke chapter eight, eight, 18 look at verse number number 20. This this young ruler had come to Jesus and he was asking, you know, what do I got to do to inherit, inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And this rich young ruler said, all these have I kept from my youth up. In other words, I've already done all that. I've already done all that. I've I've, I've done everything you want me to do, right? You think he said it kind of boastfully? Maybe. Well, what am I supposed to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus spits out these commandments, and he says, I've done all that. I've kept them from my youth up. It says in verse 22, 22, now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, yet lackest thou one thing. Hold up. I love this response. I've done all those things since I was a youth. And Jesus says, yeah, but there's one thing you lack. Whoa. In the conversation, you could hear like a a pin drop in the place. His the guy boastfully tells the Lord, I've done all that since I was young. Yeah, but you lack something. You done forgot something. You almost hear him say, what? What? Look what he says. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. got God ask you to do that? No, he asked him to do that. Why? This is, was an idol to him. This is something that he put above God. Because you can tell by his response. Look at the next verse. When he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God of god it's not just riches that'll keep somebody out of the kingdom of god it's whatever you put above god that'll keep you it's those things in our life i put in my notes riches in quotations because each one of us has personal riches it may be a relationship that we're not willing to let go of and we'll just go to hell with it because that's a person we want to just be with and we're just gonna ride this thing all the way to the flames of hell Some people have certain sins in their life and they're not willing to let them go. Pastor, don't talk about my alcohol. Don't you talk about anything else. Don't talk about that. Don't talk about my marijuana. Don't talk about my this. Don't talk about my, don't don't talk about this. Everybody's got their quote unquote riches. And anything that we are not willing to release and surrender to God is an idol in our life. And when this rich young ruler heard Jesus say this, he said, whoo, I can't do that. He says he got sorrowful, sorrowful. These were not godly tears. If you compare this to Psalm 126, the tears that he sown into the earth are still there. But when you sorrow after a godly sort, the tears that you sow will be reaped in joy. The tears that you cry out when you turn to God will turn to joy. But it's when your tears are from the worldly perspective that they hit the dirt and stay there. This is what happened to this young man. He had worldly sorrow. Notice what happens. Will you notice what happens? Will you listen to this? This godly sorrow that he did not have was worldly sorrow, and what he did is he walked away from Jesus. Do you notice that this was like the mic drop of all mic drops? Jesus said, take all that you have, sell it to the poor, and come follow me. Boom. And this rich young ruler just walks away I don't want any of that you you can have your disciples you can have your you know you can have your kingdom come you can have your way you can have all that I'm gonna keep my stuff for the remaining days I have left I'm just gonna hoard it he was unwilling to release it to God whatever the quote-unquote riches are but notice notice what happened And this happens every time with worldly sorrow. It led him away from Jesus. He didn't say, he didn't stand there and say, but Lord, why? Or Lord, how much? Or Lord, this, Lord. He didn't any of that. It was just, well, I can't do that. I'm just gonna walk away. How many of you know that's a lonely road? How many of you been down that? I've been down that road before, right? You've been down that road? It's a lonely road when you know you're making the wrong choice and every step you take, you know you're making the wrong step. But until you're ready to release that idol, until you're ready to release that idol, that idol will take you away from Jesus. And that's what it was doing. And worldly sorrow works the same thing. It says, back over in our passage, it says that worldly sorrow works death. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. Not nine out of ten times. Not seven out of ten times. Not in 80% of our clinical trials. The wages of sin is death, period. The gift of God is eternal life, but the wages of sin is death every time. And so when we're looking at this passage, we're looking at these streams of tears that that when the the tears are sown, the, the joy gets reaped. But it's only the tears that turn to God. Not just any tears. Not just any brokenness. Brokenness that causes us to turn to God. That's what God's looking for. That's what God's looking for. Now, turn back to to 2 Corinthians 7, just a second. 2 Corinthians 7, let me show you something here. So, worldly sorrow, as I said, worldly sorrow produces death every time. Godly sorrow produces salvation every time. And every time somebody begins to be sorrowful after a godly manner, things happen. Many of you know that the just shall live by faith, right? But faith without what is dead? Faith without works is dead. When right faith happens, right works follow. When right faith happens, right works will follow. And when godly sorrow happens, godly things will happen too. When we begin to get tore up about the things of God, things will happen in our lives. God will begin to work something new in you. You, you you go down to those altars, you go down to your altar at home, you hit your knees and you begin to cry out to God because people that you know and love are not following him. You, you may know a daughter or a mother or a cousin or somebody who's fallen away from God, somebody who's rejecting God and you just begin to cry out for them and say, God, they're going the wrong way. Lord, please save them, open the eyes of their heart. God, Well, just lift them up to you and I pray, God, just a prayer of intercession, Lord, that you would intervene in their life, that you would send laborers for the gospel across their path, God, move in their life, Father. Lord, we just pray for you to open their heart, God, to your grace, to your truth, Lord, to the light of the gospel. And you know what'll happen? You know what will happen? God will begin to do something in you. God will begin to do something in you. You can't sow those kind of tears and not have the kind of, uh, of of reaping that God's going to do. You sow those kinds of tears into God's kingdom and God's going to begin to produce fruit in your life through you that glorifies him. You begin to sow that kind of seed, you're going to you're going to reap a godly harvest. Verse number 11, he said, behold this self, same thing. In other words, just continuing in the, same, in the same thing. You sorrowed after a godly sort. This is what he's talking about. This is somebody who's broken because things aren't the way they're supposed to be in the kingdom. This is, you know, whenever Jesus prayed, the the you know, when they asked Jesus how we're supposed to pray, and Jesus said, you know, father right and he he taught the disciples how to pray one of the things he said was your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven isn't that what he said i want to see your kingdom at work in this world because everywhere else i look i see death i see destruction i see lives broken i see Pain, I see misery, I see despair, I see darkness, I see depression, I see all that around me, I see the destruction. That sin has brought into the world, but I want to see your kingdom come here. I want to see. I want to see hope. I want to see healing. I want to see deliverance. I want to see salvation. I want to see the Spirit of God begin to revive those dead things. I want to see streams in the desert begin to produce. I want to see that that stream that comes from the south, that thing that goes against the grain. The world is all going this way. I want to see that stream from the south that goes the other way. This is the sorrow of the godly sort. And look what happens. You sow those kind of tears. Watch what happens. What careful, it says you sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yes, what fear. Yes, what vehement desire. Yes, what zeal. Yes, what revenge in all things. You have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. What Paul's saying is you allowed this godly brokenness to, to touch your soul. Listen, you you want to be a man or a woman of God, you're gonna to have to have a tender, compassionate heart. Your heart's gonna to have to break for people that aren't right with God. You can't get all haughty. Don't let your nose get up in the air so when it rains you drown. Don't, don't get all, don't get all self-righteous. You can't be self-righteous. God wants you to be compassionate. Your, your model is Christ. And Christ was not self-righteous. He was righteous. Not self-righteous. Amen? And, 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 and his desire was to seek and to save the lost. His eyes were on the broken. When you look at the life of Christ, he wasn't picking out the high and the mighty in the crowd. He was picking out the adulterers. He was picking out the Zacchaeuses. He was picking out the prostitute. He was making himself available for those that were broken and down and rejected from the world. And when we're not doing the same, we're not walking in his steps. Oh, we'll quote, nevertheless, you know, Christ lives in me, right? I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but I. That's how we would say it. If you want to say yet not I, but Christ lives in me, then you better walk the way he walked and love what he loved and and pray like he prayed, not my will, thy will. See, we always pick out the high and mighty in the crowds. Jesus picked out the low. He went to those that everybody else passed by. He went to those that everybody else forgot about. He went to those that everybody else mocked him because he went to them. What are you doing going to Zacchaeus' house? This wee little man, he's a thief. What are you doing going to his house? Conversation ends and Jesus says, Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house. They didn't see what Jesus saw. So notice a couple of the things I just want to touch on in, in, in this verse. This is 2 Corinthians 7, 11. He said, after they began to get broken over the things of God, God worked in them these things. Carefulness. You know what that means? Each step I take, I want it to honor God. I'm going to pray about it before I do it. Somebody comes to you, somebody comes to you with with this, that, or the other. Yeah, let me pray about that, brother. I don't want to just jump in headlong. I want to make sure I'm honoring God in all that I do. Carefulness means every step I take I'm making sure that I walk after God in it. The clearing of yourselves that's that's getting past this sin issue, that that, that I'm no longer blind, that I'm no longer blind to sin, that I'm no longer a compromiser, that I'm no longer like Eli, that I no longer just turn my head when I know there's sin, when I know there's open sin. I'm not going to turn my head. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and deal with it in a godly way because I, look, we have to love the sinner. You have to care about the soul. And when Paul wrote this letter and he was telling them to correct this situation, it's because he didn't want this guy to go to hell. Amen. You can't turn a blind eye when hell's flames are real. Amen. What indignation, indignation is, is, you look at indignation, that's a prophet of God. You look at Jeremiah, he had the fire of God shot up in his bones, right? The word of God was like fire shot up in his bones. That indignation, that's when things aren't right. I can't just go quietly in the night. I can't just keep my mouth shut while people go to hell. I will allow God to use my vocal cords. He gave them to me. I will allow God to use my breath. He gave it to me. I will allow God to use my mind. He gave it to me. I will allow God to use my heart. He gave it to me. I will allow God to use my time. He gave it to me. I will, I will fight. I will contend. I will not go quietly in the night. Indignation is when you get that godly thing rise up in you. I'm not content to see a son or a daughter go to hell. I'm not content to see somebody that I love go into depression or darkness. I'm not content to see somebody that I love go wayward or go prodigal or go backwards. I wanna see God move in their life and I'm not gonna stop until I see I'm gonna get to those altars. Now, I'm. you know, we we always talk about you, you you listen to football games or something, they always talk about this guy was the first one in the gym and the last one to leave. He cares a lot about his team. Where is that on the Christian field? Where are the Christians that are the first one in the church and the last one to leave? Who's the first one to the altar and the last one to get off the altar? Who's the first one, right? I'm going to bring my son or my daughter to that altar and I'm going I'm to be the first one to hit the altar and I'm going to be the last one to get up. I'm going to pray, I'm going to intercede and I'm not going to get off this till God moves that's called righteous indignation that's what Paul's talking about he said that's what it'll work in you when you allow God to break you down when you allow God to touch your heart when you get where God wants you to be and you begin to sow those tears of godly sorrow you'll begin to reap that joy and God will work in you a righteous fire After indignation, he says fear, vehement desire, zeal. That's all the same. Just that fire of God. the The fear is the fear of God. This desire, this zeal, it's a burning. It's a burning passion. In other words, it's the opposite of apathy. You know what apathy is. Well, it stinks that it's happened to them, but at least it's not happening to me. That's apathy. Apathy is 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 being separated from passion. That's what apathy is. It's being completely separated from caring. But when you have zeal and righteous indignation and you have this righteous desire and you have the fire of God in your soul again, you know, whenever you first got filled with the Holy Ghost and you had that fire, you had that zeal, you was praying, you was interceding and then things happen. But God restores all these things in your life when you turn back to God with godly tears when you turn listen when you turn to God God turns to you you draw near to God James 4 8 you draw near to God God will draw nigh unto you you can't reverse that God's already drawn near to you for you say well if God would just take the first step God did at Calvary God took the first step right there. He did all that was necessary to make things right between you and him. And what he requires of you is to draw near to the cross. Not say, Well, I'm tired. Hey, don't you think he was too? Well, I don't want to. You think he really wanted to? Despising the shame, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured. Hebrews twelve. So the 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 desire, the zeal, and look at the revenge. Look at that seven eleven. Second Corinthians seven eleven. What's that? What's that mean? What's godly revenge? That's, don't don't let your flesh, you know, mess you up here. Godly revenge is is. It's when you do the opposite of what the flesh wants to do. For instance. If, if you were a glutton on one side of the cross and you were going to operate in godly revenge, you would fast on the other side. This is, this is well, our, our generation you called it, I don't know, they might call it something different, but they used to call it flipping the script. It's just totally going the opposite way. You know, you used to be a drunk, now you're going to be sober. You used to be a glutton, now you're going to fast. You used to be prayerless. Now you're going to be a prayer warrior. You used to get whooped by the enemy. Now you're going to, get, you're going to be walking in victory. You used to be bound up. Now you're going to be set free. This is godly revenge. This is operating the way God wants you to operate. This is walking in the fullness of the spirit. This is going after God and not having any buts or ifs or ands or commas or semicolons or dot, dot, dots. And the last thing, he said, you approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. What does he mean by that? He said, you handled it the way you needed to handle it. You showed yourself approved because they allowed that letter from 1 Corinthians to to touch them. Do you know, let me just say this, that's a soft heart. Pharaoh lost Egypt, because he had a hard heart, he not only lost his slaves, but he lost the whole thing because he refused to listen to God. He lost everything and a hard heart will always do that. A hard heart will make you, will cause you to make decisions that you know are wrong. Every, every time Pharaoh said, okay, I'm going to let your people go, he'd wake up the next day and say, nope, I'm not going to do it. A hard heart will always cause you to make decisions that you know you'll regret. In the process of doing it, you know you will. And that's a sign. If you're in that kind of a situation and you say, well, I know I shouldn't do it. If you're in that, that's a sign of a hard heart. And what you need to do is get back to the truth of God's word and allow that truth to kind of break up that hardness. Allow the truth of God's word to till up all that hard ground, to till up all that, that God can begin to move in your life. Just allow God to continue to till. And what, what Paul commended them about, he said, you allowed my letter to work in you godly sorrow, and it worked this, 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 and this. You're clear in this matter. In other words, you opened your heart. You opened your heart to God's way. And now you're clear. Now I'll turn back with me to Psalm 126 and we'll close right here. This this psalm is so powerful. It's so powerful and it's it's deep. I just encourage you to just study on this thing. It's so good. It's so good. Look at, we're going to read four, five, and six. The, the writer of the psalm said, Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Notice what he did. We're not going to turn, we're not going, we're not going to turn to the flesh. This is a heart of repentance. I'm not going to turn to the flesh. I'm not going to try harder. Listen. I'm not going to try harder. I'm not going to bring more troops to the battle. I'm not going to write any more letters to any more kings or governors. I'm not going to try to round up everybody and get everybody. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. God, I need you to do it. This is turning to God. Lord, turn our captivity. What we don't see is the part before that. When you say, Lord, turn it, You're turning to God. You're letting go of your way of fixing it. If you, whatever situation is going on in your life, if you say right now, Lord, turn my captivity in this issue, you have just released self. You have released every device at your disposal. You've released every exit. You've released every on-ramp. You've released everything of the flesh, and you've turned to God in that moment and if you'll stay in that place and stay in that brokenness he said turn turn it lord like the streams in the south that's earlier we talked about that that's a stream that goes the opposite way of the world they that sow in tears shall reap in joy again don't you see this is not crocodile tears those that sow godly tears will reap in joy. If you're willing to be broken, you're a candidate to be revived, but you can't be revived until you're broken. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. The precious seed that God's looking for is a broken and contrite spirit. It's a sweet seed to the kingdom of God when God's people will be broken when things aren't right. When God's people are willing to cry out, when God's people are willing to get to get broken, when God's people are willing to, to just go to God with their issues, when God's people are, are willing to let the Spirit work on them and in them, repentant and contrite heart. That's a precious seed in God's eyes for the kingdom's advancement. That's how how God's fruit grows. That's how the kingdom advances. It's when God's people turn to him in repentance. And that stream will always produce joy. You'll immediately find joy because you'll immediately have weight lifted off of you. And if you'll stay faithful to God, you'll see the results begin You'll see that harvest begin. He said, you'll, you'll be able to go out and harvest. You'll be able to sing bringing in the sheaves. You'll be bringing in the harvest. But you're not going to bring in the godly harvest until you sow in a godly manner. You're not going to bring in a godly harvest till you sow in a godly manner. And the seed that God's looking for in this context is the seed of repentant tears. And when you sow them, you'll reap the godly result that you desire. Amen? Heavenly